I'm not a photographer. So to say in the sense that I just want to go out and like take pictures, I want to go out and feel something. And if the photograph can help translate that feeling, then it's valuable. And I think that the the thing that people forget is like, I use a camera maybe like 10% of the time. The other, and I'm talking about like when I'm out in the field yeah. or experience, like the other 90%, like Big Sur is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I've photographed it in every which way you can. It's important to be there and really be there. People always ask like, oh, what is, where does a story come from? And you're like, the story comes from putting the camera down and living it and then having something to say. And those are the experiences that cultivate like a feeling of having something worth saying, I guess. It's showtime, everybody! Showtime! You've been living in a dream world, Neil. This is the world as it exists today. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Listen, we're talking about practice. They peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. I see. You think this has nothing to do with you. Don't ever trash talk black Jesus. This is the Adventure Stash with Pace and McCalvin. Hello, and welcome to episode two of the Adventure Stash podcast. I'm your host, Pace and McCalvin. Imagine you're 22 years old and inside the walls of a Vladivostok prison cell. Your only human contact is a one-eyed Russian guard named Igor. With 3.4 million followers on Instagram, chances are good you see Chris Burkhardt's images on your phone regularly. But do you know what goes into capturing them? As one of the most highly regarded photographers in the world, Chris has made a name for himself by beautifully capturing moments from some of the wildest and most remote corners of the globe. An incredibly capable athlete in his own right, he often has to endure incredible discomfort, challenges, and misadventures to find these moments. In this second episode, I sit down with Chris and get inside his head as one of the most hardworking, toughest adventurers I've met. Chris tells us about where his famous work ethic comes from and how at 19 he was willing to put everything on the line and live in poverty in the name of chasing a dream. He talks about his love for ultra-distance riding, which is how we met, um, in all honesty, he's only getting warmed up at a hundred miles, uh, and the double-edged sword of social media and the <laughs> plight of terrible Instagram captions, uh, and why putting a camera down is the most important step to getting the shot. Chris and I actually have quite a few mutual friends, but didn't meet until recently. We were both doing the coast ride, a three-day, 350-mile ride down the coast of California from San Francisco down to Santa Barbara. And uh, I think it was on day two, maybe it was day one, um, we just sort of ran into each other out on the open roads and uh, hit it off and spent the rest of the of the ride, the, the remaining two days, mostly riding together. There was a point on day two when we were riding through Big Sur where it was just raining sideways, cold for hours. And I remember looking over at him and he was just smiling and we were just eating up this ride despite the awful conditions and really bonded over that and, and realized, you know, we're kindred spirits in a lot of ways. Um, I knew this was a guy that smiling in the face of uh, not the greatest conditions like that is the kind of person I can relate to. Um, and we we had all kinds of amazing conversations and 
once it was over, I asked him if he would sit down and do a formal podcast so some of y'all could get in on some of those conversations we had. And here we are. Uh, Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. Please don't forget to rate and review us. And also email us with feedback or ideas at theadventurestash at paysonmckelvin.com. And stash is S-T-A-C-H-E. Thanks for listening. How are you feeling? I feel great. Yeah? Yeah. Not tired anymore? No. Are you? That's crazy. Uh, (laughs) Yesterday was the first day where I felt like I could actually pedal at a normal ability. (laughs) And I think... I think I'm actually going to... We did three hours yesterday just in the headlands around uh, SF and it was amazing. I think I'll take one more like real rest day today and then go full throttle again. Nice. Um, I like that. But you did... uh, You did obviously Coast Ride with bonus miles. (laughs) You did... What did you do the next day? Did you take a rest day the next day? Um, The the next day I... Went climbing. <laughs> like rock, rock climbing. Uh, yeah, like there's not really like anything as like a rest day for me. <laughs> I, I feel like I, I'm going to do something. So like yesterday, I just try to get like a couple hours of exercise every day. And like yesterday, I like did yoga. Then I went surfing for two hours. Then I went climbing for two hours at Jeez. night. And then this morning, I woke up, did some yoga. And I don't know what I'm going to do. But I, I, it's funny because like I used to, that used to be like my life. I used to like. I used to do yoga as like a, uh, like a lot and like got my teacher certification and this and that. And like I grew up surfing and I, I climbed a lot. And it's just it, – I've always taken that Yvonne Chouinard approach where like mm. he's always like I'm an 80 percenter. Like if you're 100 percent at anything, then it takes all your focus. Like you're, you're a 100 percenter. And that's – 100 percent, I'm 100 percenter. And that's great <laughs> because you, you, you have to. But like for yeah. me, I'm like I can never give – more than like 80% yeah. to one thing. Cause I, there's too many other things that I really enjoy. And I think my, my job requires me to like have those skills sharp, you know, like being on a rope and climbing and shooting and, or like skiing and like being able to like be in the mountains and move around kind of semi-efficiently, you know? Yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. kind of weird, but yeah, for sure. cycling doesn't really like help anything else. No, no. It gives a good baseline cardiovascular fitness but it does doesn't, like when i go it actually gets you into trouble because if i go run in the off season cardiovascularly i'm so fit that i could just go run an hour For, yeah no problem but it would just annihilate all of your you know tissues and connective right. tissue and everything and it'd right. just be bad news it's crazy so it gets you into trouble but you're a dang good 80 percenter cyclist i don't know about that. <laughs> like i was so impressed i mean i someone emailed me or texted me a link to one of your it was like your 200 plus mile ride where you started yeah. at 2 a.m few weeks yeah ago, yeah yeah <laughs> and they were like man this guy is crazy and uh, i was like yeah that guy's crazy um <laughs> <laughs> but when we rode the coast ride together i mean we spent a lot of hours together yeah the yeah last few days a i realized you weren't crazy yeah um, you're a pretty normal guy um, apparently but also you are crazy fit crazy strong and it was so fun riding. Oh, with dude, you. it's cool to me how, unlike any other sport, the one beautiful thing about cycling, this is what people just don't realize. It like, and this is like I've always tried to pitch it like this to to outsiders. Is like I really like to take in my surroundings. Like yeah. swimming, I hate. Yeah, I hate swimming in a pool. I've done it for. I did it for years. Like it sucks. You're, you're just blind. waiting for it to be over. Yeah, you're like 
where can my mind drift to? When you're running, you're like, mm-hmm. you're pounding pavement, you know, you're, 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 it's, it's pretty, but like, dude, you're seeing well, what you, you run for five hours. You're going to go like 25 miles, 20 miles, 20, 25 miles. If you're yeah. like fast, yeah. you're not going to see that much, but on a bike, dude, you can see so much and you can like interact with people and hang out and like take stuff in and like joke and laugh and talk and you know, whatever you want, you, you could do a podcast, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I just, I love that aspect of it. Like I got to literally see like my favorite stretch of coast for three days and like meet a bunch of people and like eat a bunch of rad food. Like that's like the coolest way to experience a place. I think. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I always tell people is it's my favorite way to quote unquote, learn the world. One thing that I didn't mean to jump straight into photography yet, but one thing that comes yeah. through in to me in your work is that it feels really, really authentic. Like you are there. A great photograph takes you somewhere, but like you live that place and you live that lifestyle. Like when we were riding together down the coast and we had that day in Big Sur where it was just spitting rain. Yeah. And we were this little group. Little ball. Little, <laughs> little three or four people. Yeah. And it was a good, good group because not a single one of us was complaining about the weather yeah. or bumming. No. And I would look back at you and you'd just be grinning. Oh, dude. And like you love the suffer. You love being out there regardless of the elements. Um, what is it about um, just being in an environment that's kind of harsh? Because that's sort of what you specialize yeah, what, in. What, why do you gravitate towards that? It's super funny. Um, I'll give you my best you know, my best, uh, like answer. And it's, it's really challenging to kind of like explain, but I, I was traveling for a number of years for the magazines and surf magazines, other, you know, traveling to places that a lot of people had been before and, you know, going to beautiful places, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, you know, the, uh, Mentua islands, Australia, et cetera, et cetera. And just incredible places that I had seen a lot of images of before. And what was happening is I was going there with this promise of like ad- adventure. I was being sold this like, Oh, it's going to, you know, it's gonna be incredible. And you're, you're seeing these photos and, and you get there and you know, you have great food and super strong Wi-Fi, and you have a high rise <laughs> hotel behind you. And you're like, dude, this is not what I expect. And I think that growing up on the central coast, of California, we're all kind of a, a byproduct of our environment, right? Mm-hmm. I was used to like having to chase waves up and down the coast and get into a cold, wet wetsuit, and you know, and, and I think that that experience really made me feel like I valued the work more. And so when I started working as a professional, um, I really realized that I needed to start seeking out other places, seeking out experiences that were going to leave an impression on me, and more so make me feel like the images that I was creating, they required something. They required something of myself. Like I'm not a photographer. So to say in the sense that I just want to go out and like take pictures, I want to go out and feel something. And if the photograph can help translate that feeling, then it's valuable. And I think that the the thing that people forget is like, I use a camera maybe like 10% of the time. The other and I'm talking about like when I'm out in the field yeah. or experience, like the other 90%, like Big Sur is one of the most beautiful places on the planet. I've photographed it in every which way you can. I've driven it. I've ridden my bike there for, but like, it's important to be there and really be there. People always ask like, Oh, what is Where does a story come from? And you're like, the story comes from putting the camera down and living it and then having something to say. And those are the experiences that you, that cultivate like a feeling of having something worth saying, I guess. 
Absolutely. I mean, you just hit the nail on the head. I, I have the sense that when you go to one of these places, when you put your camera down, you want to hang out there longer. Right, right. Um, well, it'd be like for you, like you're like, okay, is the only way you want to experience a bike in a contest? You're like, right, no, right, of course right, not. Right. Like that's yeah. that's like the 1%. Like I'm, I ride a bike 90% of the time to to feel you know, the experience of being on the bike. And then the, the contest is more of just like the, the results, the fun, you know? Yeah. That parallel is so interesting. Cause you see so many racers or athletes kind of flame out because they're in it just for the competition component and they're not there for the process. They're not there for the day to day. Yeah. And so when that racing isn't going as well, they're not loving it anymore. I could see. Yeah. And in that, I feel like I'm in a lucky position where like, for me, all my athletic pursuits are just to kind of keep myself in shape for like my own life like family and and photography and traveling and and or like whatever wrestling my kids but i I could see it being really challenging from a perspective of like you have the opportunity to like be at the absolute best Mm. shape of your life and and perform at the best and, and get the best result and to like find that balance of like enjoyment versus like punishing yourself because i mean some of your training is like pretty punishing i i bet you know like yeah, yeah when i see you guys put in these efforts i'm just like i'm like i don't have anything left to give <laughs> like i don't even well you're so you're so interesting from a from an athlete component too on the bike i was noticing because you your endurance capacity is ridiculous i mean for those that don't know we were doing this three-day coast ride it's called which is uh, about 130 miles a day starting in san francisco ending in santa barbara and um 130 miles is a long way to ride a bike, but every day you voluntarily made it 150. You'd go out and you'd get 20, 25 extra miles. Where did that goal come from and where does that motivation come from? So like long story short, I used to ride a lot before I had kids. I have two kids, Jeremiah and Forrest. Forrest is four, Jeremiah is six, about six years ago. I used to ride a ton. Um, I did a bunch of like century rides and Mondos, whatever, you know, and just fun stuff around Central Coast and um, a bike was always just like, like you said, it was a great like baseline aerobic exercise where you could go out, listen to music, whatever. And, and then I had a kid and it kind of like squashed that. I was yeah. like, okay, I can't, don't really have time for that. I was really, I was in the thick of it. You have a one in the, you have like a one and a three year old and life is, gets pretty gnarly. Um, so like over the last year, two years, I've kind of gotten back into riding a lot and I just, I, I found the joy again of like those long days and, um, I think that I kind of set like this sort of arbitrary goal that I was like, you know, you get to 100 miles and you're like, oh man, I wonder what 200 would feel mm-hmm. like. And then you get to 200 miles and you're kind of like, I wonder what 300 would feel like. <laughs> and um, I started to kind of just do these training rides where they were, um, they weren't like really training rides per se as like, oh, you're going to go out and you're going to, you're going to see how far you can go. It was more like, I want to go out sleep deprived and ride through the middle of the night to see what my mental capacity is. Vision I wanna, quest rides. Yeah, I want to go out when it's the coldest day of the year and ride to see what it feels like. And yeah, sometimes you're shivering in a 7-Eleven holding a cup of coffee that you're not even going to drink because you're so cold. <laughs> yeah. Or you're like in the bathroom putting your hands under the heater and you're like shivering. But yeah, like you called it. Like, And, and I, I have always loved putting myself in an uncomfortable position to see what happens. I've always been a fan of like, if you, if you voice a goal, then maybe it'll happen or people can hold you to it. But I really want to do this ride around Iceland. It's a relay, but there are a few positions open for solo is, and it's 849 miles in 82 hours around the country. And it's full on. I mean, you're, 
you're putting in. I was thinking about it on the coast ride. I'm like, we only did 150 miles a day. And that equated for me at least to 450 mi- 453 miles over three days. I'd have to do double that. It's like it's psychotic, but um, but but I just again I've like I've always thought it's a way to put you in a place you love and experience it in a new way. I've been to Iceland, like I said, thirty one times, and I've seen it from every perspective. But to to go and like experience it in this way would be super fulfilling. And then there's a bunch of other. That Furnace Creek, I'd love to do. Mm. Um, I'm not a big like group ride person. Most of the stuff I do, I do with one person or solo, mm-hmm. and so I I kind of have felt like that's um, that's where I just get, get the most out of it. You know, it's like yeah. you, your mind really starts to wander. Yeah, there was an outside article that I read about you this morning that included a quote from uh, Brock Bastion. That I really liked. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is a shortened version. But basically it was pain is a shortcut to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. Yes. So he kind of spot on. Yeah. No, I'm so stoked you brought that up because Brock was a he's a psychologist. And when I gave my TED talk three years ago, I I studied his work a bit because I was trying to understand why would anybody want to surf in freezing cold water. I've surfed in Alaska and Norway and kind of been known for that photography Mm -hmm. world is like going to these colder climates. Brock Bastion really like put it into context for me, which is that pain does bring you to a place of, of a meditative state. And this is actually the study that I was super interested by. And I think you dig this is like, he took these two blind sample groups and there was a group of people who had experienced trauma, um, whatever loss of a loved one, something, who knows, whatever it is, like, you know, it could be physical, it could be emotional. Um, and then he took a group of people who hadn't experienced any trauma. And what he did is he gave these people water with like um with like a scented flavor or something like that he basically asked them to like identify what the flavor was what Mm. the scent was and the people with trauma like 90 percent of the time could could answer more effectively because when you are exposed to something like that your your senses are opened up you're more vulnerable you're more aware you're more keen right like your, your your sight sound vision all that stuff is a little sharper because because you're in that state. And I just thought, I just thought, wow, that's really interesting. I mean, and people talk about that, like cycling Zen, you know, you get to mile, whatever you get to like, you, you become part of the road. I don't know. Yeah. Kind of crazy. No, I totally hear you. My, my sweet spot is I always feel like if I can get to three hours, yeah, the rest just comes easily. And a lot of times, like that day, that's a really good, interesting point. Yeah, I agree. that day we did for me, the, it's like six, I'm six like, hours. I'm like, I'm like, after, well, it's like, it's like after mile one, one forty, I'm kind of like, nothing i don't feel anything yeah like you know everything just kind of starts to become yeah do you think that the harsher the environment you're in contributes to a greater photographic ability well you know it's interesting i've always kind of took taking this example to people is like does it make you more raw like are you more um, in the moment i don't think so I, i would say two things one is like when you travel to say the ends of the world or whatever you want to call it to find a place to photograph. The reality is when nobody's been there, there's nothing to compare it to. So you don't mm. actually have to be a great photographer to shoot a good <laughs> image. And I wouldn't consider myself a great photographer. I would just consider myself the person willing. Anybody could go and stand on a beach in Norway and take pictures in the snow, you know, while it's like blizzarding out and it, you know, like the wind is catabatic and you're freezing. But but people don't. That's the difference. Like I'm just the one willing to sit there and like lose feelings in my fingers. I think that the, I think that the reality is like when I go to these places, I don't think that I'm bringing this amazing artistry, you know, like Ansel Adams or 
Ragnar Axelson or some photographer that I really idolize. I just think that I've always been the person who's maybe dumb enough or like <laughs> thick headed enough to be like, okay, I'll do it, you know? And, and that's kind of how it started. And I just sort of like was willing to, to be there. I was willing to be in the place that others weren't. And yes, that does equate to more interesting photographs, mainly because people haven't, there's nothing to compare it to. You go to Yosemite Valley and you take a picture of tunnel view, you have literally a billion <laughs> photos to compare it to. This is the issue with society is like, everything's comparison right and so i think when you get a, get beyond that it really starts to open you up to like i don't know thinking a little more clearly and and giving yourself a new perspective because you're having to force yourself to like see something in a new way so that's like i'm i'm addicted to that feeling seeing something in a new way experiencing something in a new way and that's so cool i mean as i've done more of these podcast episodes just more and more trends start to pop yeah. up and that's absolutely one of them is this idea of a fear that most people have of putting themselves out there and and doing something differently and you see it so often on social media and this is something else you brought up in an interview regarding instagram where you see so much copycat stuff Mm -hmm. i mean one thing that drives me crazy in the mountain bike side of things is these recycled captions Mm -hmm. like one of the most common ones is dropping into monday like yeah <laughs> and it's, it's like oh i just want to yeah. tear my hair out every time and you know and it's like why not put what is different uh, about right. this photo that you're posting tell us what's different right uh, and that's so <laughs> that's actually like really really good point and i one of the things i would say is that to be honest i've been the person that's that's written some like crappy caption in the past and what i realized really quickly was that you, you do yourself a huge disservice if you go out and you experience something amazing and incredible and you bring it back and you share it with the world and you literally just take somebody else's quote and yeah. you say, the mountains are calling and I must go. Like that is the that is the most asinine thing you could ever do. And although that quote may mean something to you, I, I appreciate that. You're losing the opportunity to give people a sense of who you are, what you experience, the, the the cold wind hitting your back and the visceral experience of being there. And whenever I I teach a lot these days, whenever I kind of teach like a, I teach like a digital storytelling class, which is basically just code for like social media, but trying not to make it so heartless. <laughs> my my golden rule, the the one takeaway I try to have every photographer leave with or every creative or whatever is do not describe to people what they can already see. Mm. You don't need to know. You have eyes. It's one of the things you need to engage with social media. And to to describe what people can already see is there, it does them a disservice and does you a disservice. So tell me what it felt like to be there. You experienced this. Like I want to know something unrelated to the image. I want to know what it was like, you know, to to plan it, to to prep, to be, you know, to take the picture, like what happened afterwards. I just, I just think there's, there's so much missing. And I personally feel like growing up in a, in an environment of storytelling, I started to travel because I, I didn't go anywhere as a kid. My mom, you know, was single parent and she just never left the country. And so I really, when I started to go places, all I wanted to do is bring these experiences back to her. Mm. And what ended up happening was like, I would come back from these trips and share them with my mom, like do slideshows. And then I would, and then my community got a little bigger and it was my group of friends. And then my community got larger and now it's millions of people, which is great, but it, but it's, it's at the same core value. Right. And so to kind of just, I don't know, sorry, long, like, no, that's amazing. That's that's amazing. That's like, that's just the way I've always seen it. Like to me, Instagram is a storytelling tool and it always will be. And 
I think that you and I could go to the same place, take the exact same picture, and it could even be one of these trendy places. I personally think that even if you take a picture in a popular or trendy location, it doesn't really matter. It's about what you say about it that I think makes the biggest difference. Mm. Yeah. What stories behind it, yeah. We just like, we tend to like lose our voice on there. Yeah, you know, it's, it's so weird. true. It's so true. Yeah, it's almost like you're, you, you always have an eye, one eye on what other people are doing and yeah. you can't focus. It, it is hard and I agree. And this is why I've loved the podcast for, for me, like over the last year podcasts or what have gotten me through like long rides because mm-hmm. I, this long form conversation style, like this is what the world is missing. Everything we do is so quick. Like I know what you're doing every day. You know what I'm doing every day because you see my stories or Instagram. It's like this weird relationship where you're yeah. like, you're, you're really connected to people, but you're actually really not connected. So yeah. to like understand that we can sit there and just converse is, is I think really notable. And just like, I think the, this society needs a little bit more. Yeah. Maybe. So what are, what are some of the podcasts that you like listening to? <laughs> Rich Roll is a big, a big one of yeah. mine, you know, just cause I'm a big health advocate and I happen to be vegan. I don't think that's necessarily the right choice for everybody, but it's just something that I'm interested in and, um, been vegetarian for maybe like eight, 10 years. And, um, I enjoy Rich Roll's podcast, mostly like about the, the training and the ultra endurance and stuff. Joe Rogan's always a good one. I feel like, you know, there's certain episodes where I'm just like so annoyed and bored. <laughs> yeah. And then some I feel like really hit it on the head. Armchair Expert's a funny one. Dak Shepard, sometimes he can be a little annoying. <laughs> um, I usually kind of just seek out individual ones that I really like or I'll, I'll pull on social media like, hey, what's what's a good podcast? And people will send me them. Yeah. And that's always fun because I, I really um, – Obviously, anything with, anything with David Goggins is usually like pretty good. When I'm in like you guys are kindred spirits, let me tell you. When I'm in like those harsh rides, <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, Ugh, I'm like, I listen to Goggins, and I'm like, toughen up, like, dude. That story, still that story where he ran the the first time he ran that hundred miler on the track. Oh yeah, the track. Yeah, and the, he, to, he to, like, broke qualify. his legs. Yeah, to qualify. And j- like I haven't heard. So I'm reading this book right now called Endure. That's yeah. really interesting. Oh, Have you heard about no, it? No. Oh man, it. you got to read it. I'll send you a copy. And it talks a lot about limits, mm-hmm. psychological limits yeah. versus physical limits. Real physical limits, yeah. Yeah, and exploring, you know, central governor theory, what slows us down so that we don't kill ourselves <clears throat> through effort. Right. That sort of thing. And it was fascinating because David Goggins' whole thing is you can go further. You can't keep yeah. going. Like when you think you're at the end, you're 40, you've only gone 40%. Yeah. It's like so heavy. Right. It, 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 but how frequently do people exercise themselves to death in when there's not some sort of event like cardiac arrest, like hypothermia, right. that sort of thing? It almost never happens. Why right. is that? Right. And there's a case study in there about this guy, and I can't remember his name, but he wanted to be the first one to trek across antarctica solo unsupported Mm -hmm. yeah and i think this was back in like 2013 or 2014 stop me if you've heard about this but he got like two-thirds of the way across yeah i have but i want to hear the story it's good yeah you have heard this i have heard it but i want to hear it but i want to hear like what yeah and he basically had to bail yeah turn around head back but he had pushed himself so far that he ended up dying no way yeah 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 and it's it was just a matter of he pushed himself that far. It wasn't like some cardiac arrest or et cetera, et cetera. He just broke his body down that far. And he was so, so driven that he was, he was so motivated to make this goal happen. And so they kind of explore in the book, you know, why was that? What was different? 
And it's just, it, I'm so fascinated by that limit because I race all the time mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where there are very tangible prizes that you're chasing. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I've never clearly pushed myself to where I died in a race. No, true. And, and so what, and, and what you've is, also never been motivated by, you've probably never been motivated by like the, the cash prize or the, this right. or the time. No, you're right. Yeah. yeah it, it's, it's, it's not about, it's not about that, but it's this, it's, Interesting to rather than think about a competition like that as who's prepared better, which mm-hmm. obviously is really important. It's like who's who, to give where more. is everyone in their mind right now? And I'm yeah. constantly thinking that because it's this poker game. You're well, playing how do you prepare with for that? How do you like prep? I mean, how do you exercise the mind to be to be stronger? You know, that's yeah. what I've always it's struggled just like with. a it's muscle, like, right? I think. I mean, after an off season, I'll jump back in. That first three-hour ride feels like an eternity. I'm just watching the minutes go down, minutes go down, minutes go down. When we did that dang seven-and-a-half-hour ride the other day, it was like, that was seven-and-a-half hours? Yeah, yeah. We started at sunrise, and now it's sunset? Where did the time go? I know. I know. (laughs) So true. So true. It is is interesting, this concept that the mind is a muscle. But it's, it's hard because I've... I've been known to be somebody who like doesn't get a lot of sleep a lot of times. I wanted I, to bring that up. And that's kind of one of these things I'm like, is like that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is yeah. it, am I ruining myself by not getting enough rest? I've always been concerned about like my lack of sleep, but it's also something that just at the times like I feel like you have to learn to work with. You have to learn to endure because of the fact that you're going to be faced with a situation where you're going to need to go on like two hours of sleep. And what will that feel like? I guess I've always wondered if you don't prepare for it, can you actually survive it? Like if you don't ever mm, interesting. put yourself in a, in a situation where you've tried, you know, like that's kind of been one of those things that like, that I've really like been intrigued by is how, where are the limits of the mind? How can you, how can you push those limits? And, and ultimately how does it benefit you? You know, cause it's, it's really unique. I think ultra endurance runners really get to that place. They they hit really really physical walls on a bike. You can always slow down, yeah. You know, like yeah. and kind yeah. of cheat a little bit. Like, For sure. Yeah, you're yeah. just hanging on this machine, which in some ways you can almost push yourself harder. I you agree. Can, you can bail out, but you can but also you, push yourself. But you harder. can push yourself harder. Yeah, because yeah, because you're always like, okay, if I push through this climb, I can rest on the yeah. descent yeah. and just do nothing. Yeah. And that's kind of dangerous yeah. because you you get up there, you're anaerobic, and then you're like. You know, unless you're in a racing scenario, then you're like, oh, you know, but you can be like collapse on the bike kind of thing. (laughs) It's like not good. No, it's funny, though, because going back to where taking yourself to those places, you know what it can mean. Um, Back when I was a young junior racer and just had absolutely no experience in training, didn't understand the big picture. I actually push myself harder sometimes in training. Really? Which is somewhat counterintuitive maybe but good and bad yeah i exactly i have a memory of when i literally fell off my bike are you serious yeah yeah because i pushed myself so hard and it was awesome it's one of my most prized memories um and it's prized and proud memories and it's not it wasn't a great way to train because then i couldn't train for three or four days afterward but i pushed myself so hard that i literally like even the bike couldn't hold me up anymore. I couldn't I couldn't drive my bike. I just fell yeah. off my bike. Um, and I the the vividness of that memory is so so deep. Is it something you kind of like go back to? Like oh, it can never be worse than this. Yeah, totally. I tend to do that too. I tend to have like a couple of these memories where they're they, they were really hard experiences, 
and it's almost like in your mind maybe you've made it out to be worse like right, you're like true. yeah and then I was like yeah, romanticized little, it's yeah, all yeah, it's bigger yeah. and everything's large <laughs> but I do have some of those like deep dark memories that I've, I've kind of like held in a special place to be like if I need to pull strength that's where I'm going to pull it from I think that that's kind of how relationships work too like I think about my wife you know together it was mostly her but you know we can get through like two childbirths and we yeah. can do it you know we can do anything and those are like tr- pretty traumatic experiences usually and and but then you kind of like forget about them but you're like that was that was a really like amazing like heroic moment for her and i just yeah. it's it's a funny thing how i think we do that in the moment they're really bad but we kind of we kind of put these these experiences on pedestal mm-hmm. because they i think um I don't know, they give us a sense of what we're really capable of. It's funny, early in my career, people, like, the question I always get asked is, like, when was your big break? When was your mm. big break? And mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, there are no big breaks. Like, I'm still a freelance photographer. Every paycheck I get is still, like, a question of whether it will come in. I don't know what next month will provide or next year. But the reality is, like, when I when I decided to become a photographer, I was going to junior college. I was working at some dead-end job and I told myself, I was 19, and I told myself I'm going to quit everything and I'm going to pursue photography. The reason being is because I knew that if I didn't try then, people always want to wait for the right moment. Oh, the, my finances are in the right place or, or um, I, I, I'm emotionally, I'm, and all these things and I, I've never been a fan of that. I've never been a fan of like making a big decision when it seems rational. I, there has to be some irrationality to it and I quit my job, I quit school, moved into my truck, and I was totally broke. And I basically was like, I'm going to do whatever I can. I'm going to give it five years. If I'm face down in the dirt somewhere, fine. If I'm thriving, that's wonderful. But I remember like scraping pennies off the floor of my Toyota Tacoma. And, you know, this wasn't, this was like pre van life. This was like, (laughs) this was like unromanticized van life, like living in a small Toyota Tacoma with a camper show where you like bear, it's like stinky wetsuit and like, you're not standing up and having like eggs and like looking killer. And stuff. um, I was like interning at trans world surf, driving four hours, uh, driving Monday morning at 3am being down there, sleeping in my truck in the parking lot, um, interning in like, like taking showers in the bathroom sink. But what I'm getting at is like, I've always looked back on that memory with fondness to be like, I was willing to sacrifice that much for photography because I loved this career. And I know now I'm much softer. I've got, you know, a house and kids and the wife and employees, and this whole business and everything. But the core of who I am, like, I'm so grateful I've had those opportunities, so grateful that I never had some handout because it's, it's provided to me an understanding of what I'm willing to give up for it. Like, it wasn't an ideal. There wasn't a light shining down and be like, go this way. It was like, no, you have to take a leap of faith. That's why it's a leap. Like, that's yeah. kind of the yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. No, I love that. Where does that come from? Because, <laughs> I mean, Jimmy Jimmy Chin said what sets you apart is your work ethic. We talk about, we haven't really talked about it yet, but we talk about how you don't sleep a whole lot. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what, where, where does this drive come from? Because it, it, it um, is everywhere in your life. It's not just your photography. It's not just... Uh, the way you exit. I mean, when I walked in, you were on a dang station. You have a, your your chair at your desk is a stationary bike, <laughs> and you That's, and you were you weren't taking a photo of the stationary bike. You're like I ride the stationary yeah. bike, but you were riding the stationary no, bike. No, nobody actually knows. Um, it, did I just blow your cover? No, no, no. Bike? It's funny. It's like uh, <laughs> it's pretty funny. I just where does where does that come um, from? You know, to be honest, and in, in, in an effort you know, to be vulnerable, like 
I, like I said before, I grew up in a single parent home. I watched my mom um, solo raise me. Um, she had me when she was 16 years old, and her mom before her had her when she was super young. And I, I know um, full well what my mom had to give up because I've lived through it. Like I've I've been to high school and I had a great high school experience and understanding and thinking about what it would be like to be a pregnant teenager going into high school and giving up so much of what she wanted loved and cared about for me was like really um emotionally challenging for me because i i've felt indebted to her for most of my life and i guess i felt the desire and need to make something of myself and i've also felt like there was absolutely unequivocally no excuses like my mom had an amazing job you know she like went to school got a college got a college degree while like raising me you know and then like and then you know was manager of a, a health club chain in in central california um while i was like in daycare and doing this and that and i had an amazing childhood and i just felt like wow like she's always been my hero and i think that 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 work ethic came from that place of like growing up seeing a parent who not only loved you but was willing to like sacrifice everything to make ends meet and i just I've always, I've always really drawn inspiration from that, and um, you know, oddly enough, my mom ended up marrying my stepdad, who has just as big of a work ethic, mm. hardest working dude ever. Like, uh, you know, he's a landscape architect, gardener, uh, you know, grow, has uh, beekeeper, like has a million different things he's doing, and just works his hands. and And um, I, I grew up kind of had that you know, inspiration for my mom. And then I worked with my dad mowing lawns and like doing like, <laughs> like landscaping for like five years. And I, I guess if anything I learned, I'm like, I don't want to do that for a living, <laughs> but I respect it. Yeah. And, um, I just, that's kind of, I guess where that inspiration came from. And I, I wanted to like prove that I was, um, I wanted to prove that I was in many ways worth all that sacrifice. And so I think that that's what inspired me to be so motivated in my career, my job. And I think that you can't be motivated and inspired in your career and job and not have it spill over into other things. It's just kind of a byproduct. And so I get antsy. People laugh because they're like, like I have, you know, interns who work for me and they're like, yeah, I was driving Chris back from San Francisco and he just told me to pull over the car and stop. And then he got out and rode home like, <laughs> like 150 miles from home. And I'm like, yeah, like I get bored, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I, and I feel like I'm either going to sit here in this car and like eat some gummy candy or I'm going to like ride bike. It's a blessing and a curse, right? Because I get accused a lot of not um, slowing down enough. And I have friends who yeah. are perfectly happy sitting on a couch reading a book for two hours. And it's a, it's hard to relate to that kind of sometimes. Yeah, and, or they'll – like I don't watch Netflix yeah, yeah. ever pretty much because I feel guilty. I'm yeah. like this is lost time even yeah. though you might – I only do on the stationary bike. <laughs> there you go. Like, uh, there yeah. you go. I used to get made so much fun of from – teammates back in the day because i would be doing like planks and setups while we would be watching something yeah um and it's it has tanked relationships for me in the past because yeah whatever it is just it comes first sometimes so and and i'll be the first one to admit like i i wish i had and i want to have more balance in my life i'm like not that was the gonna best. be a question i'm not the best at that like i like i'm, I'm a very very introspective person and I've taken a lot of time to try to understand my own issues and I think yeah like it as much of a blessing it is also like a hard thing like I have a hard time like relaxing Mm -hmm. and like 
understanding that okay like you know you could maybe not wake up at three and do this or you could like sleep in today and like give yourself a hug or something like that (laughs) but i agree it's hard i look at some people who like they can just sit and chill and read a book and like drink tea and i'm like i would like to do that and i do enjoy it from time to time but but i often think i've got to go out and like i don't know maybe like pay for some sins or something like that (laughs) so you alluded earlier or we were talking earlier about um how there are these special experiences that are maybe especially hard or Mm -hmm. memorable or that sort of thing and you kind of put them on a pedestal as what's possible right right um it's almost like a benchmark do any stories come to mind in particular that were moments like that that you're willing to share yeah um you know i was 20 i was 22 20 22 uh, freshly married i got married at 21 um felt like as invincible as you do how old are you 25 yeah okay so you don't feel as invincible as 22, <laughs> but I think you can relate. But like, yeah. I was 22, I was feeling really invincible, and um, <clears throat> I had a, I had booked a trip to uh, to Russia, and it was right around the time where I really started to realize exactly what I wanted to do with my photography. I wanted to go to these places that were like the end of the earth, like the far as you can go, like places nobody had ever surfed. I wanted to like. You know, it was an expedition. I wanted to like climb the, the newest peak, the tallest peak. That's what that's what the feeling was like. You know, um, akin to like you know riding some new trail or like you know, I don't know, having the f- fastest known time or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. So for me, that was kind of the goal. It was like, yeah, I want to, I want to, and I and I got so blinded by that desire that I kind of lost sight of the idea that like if you um, if you climb Everest an asshole you're going to come down an asshole like mm-hmm. there like there's no experience there's no getting to the top of the mountain that's going to make you a better person <laughs> the process of becoming a better person or allowing travel to change you happens before you leave your front door and i had kind of overlooked a lot of things and i got to vladivostok russia off the plane and i got interrogated for 6 hours and i got thrown into a jail cell for 24 hours really um, yeah with a guard at the door why and, uh, why were you interrogated um i had overlooked my visa date mm. everybody i had handled the visas for everybody else in the crew my visa date was wrong i had just overlooked it i didn't realize that my visa date was two days later it was said that i was there the 26th i was supposed to arrive the 28th stupid honest mistake that ultimately ended up in a lot of heartache and i was sitting there in this jail cell like can't talk to anybody can't communicate didn't know really what was going to happen i was on the phone with the u.s embassy i had my cell phone calling the u.s embassy they couldn't get me out unless they didn't feed me or unless they like treated me poorly basically there was no way for them to intervene humanitarian yeah like unless there was a situation where like they were treating me inhumanely and (laughs) this is this is actually where it gets kind of funny because the truth of the matter is, is it probably would have been much better had they not fed mm. me because I got a knock on my door, uh, my cell door thing at like midnight. And I'm not kidding you. I'm literally like swear to God, my guard's name was Igor and he had one eye. And um, <laughs> um, I-G-O-R, right? Oh, no. And he like come, he's like, come with me, you know, follow me, whatever. And I walk down to this kind of maze. I'm at this like – I'm like, outside the airport but I'm in this like sort of holding cell, retaining area. It's not like a full prison or anything like that. It's just like a – it's like a – like every 
every window has bars on the doors. There's a toilet on the in the ground sort of thing. Um, everything's chained. Right? Um, he this takes, is just for a visa infraction. Yes, but you have to keep in mind, like we're not in we're not in Saint Petersburg where there's like a lot of tourists. We're mm-hmm. in Vladivostok where there's like still a lot of anti-Semitism and it's like yeah. it's a very like cold warish vibe going on it, i mean it's a beautiful amazing place but there's some sadness and darkness there okay uh so um we go downstairs and we're walking down these dark hallways and winding around this building and i get down to this big like stainless steel kitchen everything's like kind of stainless steel it looks really like um like i don't know like experiments being done and I, and I go to this big table huge table and i have these two guards behind me and uh there's two cups there's a cup of cucumber and mayonnaise and there's a cup of soup and i look at both the cups and i i like the last thing in that moment that i want to do is eat but i hadn't eaten for like 20 like a little over 20 maybe 48 hours at this point i was starving i got off the plane interrogated then i was like you know whatever and then i was also afraid i'm like if i don't eat like what's gonna happen so i just ate and I spent the rest of my time uh, hanging around the toilet uh, <laughs> when I was there. <laughs> um, so never ask for food in a Russian jail cell. But uh, yeah, the, yeah. the reality maybe don't go to the Russian jail cell <laughs> yeah, to begin exactly. with. But... Exactly. But like... if you do, don't ask for food. Um, and that's that was you know it was funny because I've I spent a lot of time with that experience being really angry. I was really scared. I was terrified. You know, I was I didn't know what was going on. Just not being able to commu- – I've never had all my rights stripped from me. I never had a situation where I've just been in another country not knowing what was going on. And ultimately, I got deported to South Korea. Um, I got deported to South Korea and I had to wait a day there and then I came back. And uh, <laughs> and it was daunting. I was like every ounce of adrenaline in my body was like – like At customs. Get, yeah, like when I was back there. Um, did you, yeah. was it, did they explicitly tell you like, we don't want you back or? No, like I was deported. I got deported, okay. but I was able to come back because I did have the correct entry date. It was an infraction technically. So every time I go to Russia, you know, that's usually brought up, but I've been back to Russia since I'm going back to Russia in a couple months, <laughs> but I've, I, I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about this experience and being like, man, like what did I do wrong? Cause it, cause the reality is it was like the lady at the passport, like it was her fault, but no, it was mine. Like I didn't look over those dates and I didn't I didn't take the time. And that's the thing is I left my house the same person I came back. Like I didn't realize that the process of becoming someone different through traveling is it starts when you really when you leave your front door. Like the planning process. You know, people always want to be like, "Oh, I went to Thailand or Bali and I came back and I'm just a different person." You're like, "No, like <laughs> no, you're not." Like like the the idea of learning those customs, the idea of like having respect for that culture it starts way earlier than that and i guess that was for me like a really good eye-opener because i realized man if i want to do this i need to give more of myself it's going to require more of me i can't just be lazy and and so that was an eye-opener it was a big eye-opener and it was also like a heads up my family was pretty yeah that's dicey dicey times i love that takeaway though um all right you got to get out of here soon but i think folks would be frustrated with me if we didn't talk about photography just a little bit yeah absolutely um (laughs) And we don't need to go all Tim Ferriss on this, where it's like, <laughs> your top three photography tips. Yeah. But one thing that I'm hearing you what say... What would I say if I had a billboard and I was going yeah. <laughs> And to be fair, those can be very interesting answers, but yeah. that's not this podcast. Yeah. One thing that I, I hear you saying is that putting yourself in unique environments mm-hmm. is... It's so funny to me that you claim that you're not like an especially talented photographer or something like that. You just are willing to go to these places. Right. I'm sure it's both. But 
What are well, some I would say I would say I, there, there's talent, but it's like I've always thought, and this is a, actually comes from maybe like a Tim Ferriss or Joe Rogan podcast, but like the idea of talent to me, talent's great. A lot of people have talent. I would rather be someone who's willing to work hard than yep. be someone who's talented because talent, when it's faced with challenge, can sometimes fizzle and work ethic when faced with challenge usually thrives. Sure, and I feel true. like over the long term, I'd rather be somebody who has like an immense work ethic, who's willing to put that in. And and I would just consider myself not the most technical photographer. Like there's people out there who could orchestrate a beautiful flash photograph much better than me. Like I said, I've just been willing, been the person who's willing, you know, more yeah. so. But yeah. So take, take me inside your head for a minute. When you step off of a little seaplane on the coast of Alaska, Kamchatka, yeah. wherever... <laughs> And you, you step on the ground for the first time and you think, man, this place is beautiful. Mm-hmm. And you want to take a photograph. Mm-hmm. What are you looking at? What are you thinking? Is it 100% instinct at this point? Is there a process that you use? So it's what, funny. It's a great question. Um, and I, I learned from a really great mentor of mine. There was a great mentor of mine named Michael Fatali. I'm going to make the story short. But he is a large format landscape photographer who only who would go into the backcountry with – three sheets of film, eight by 10 film, like the camera behind you, this, this medium format camera, but, but even bigger. Right. And he would go back there and, and by all of his images, when he would have them in his gallery, he would always have notes. He would be like three days, two days, one day, 10 hours. And it was how long he waited for the light. Wow. And it was really interesting because I, I have talked to him and I was like, you know, how do you, how do you deal with that emotion? If you get somewhere, everything's exciting. It's like you go to Iceland and you're literally shooting photos 60 miles an hour out of a car window. Like, <laughs> like this is me, you know, and, and you see me and I'm like, you know, barely take up my camera. And the reality is he's like, I do everything but take a picture. I'll sing a song about it. I'll write a poem about it. I'll draw a picture. Maybe I'll shoot a picture, with, a photo with my like little black and white film camera. The goal is like you need – if you want to express yourself, express yourself. But to really be there, that's important. And I find that for me, when I get off the plane, when I get out of the car, I, the last thing that I want to do is take a picture. I want to breathe it in. I want to look around. I want to survey my surroundings. I never want to walk up to a subject and just shove a camera in their face. I want to form a relationship even if that's just nonverbal, visual, looking in their eyes. I feel like to me – the older I get, the story is so much more important than the photograph. If I don't have a story to tell, and I say this from experience because I've been the kid who my first trip ever was to Dubai and Yemen and Oman, ever. The first time I left the country. Wow. My parents were freaking, were freaking out. They were like, <laughs> holy crap. They were so worried about, you know, this is like post 9-11. They were freaking out. There's nothing to be worried about. It was an amazing trip. But, but I was so afraid that I filtered the entire experience through my camera. What I mean by that was like, Something, you know, that gets my heart racing. I'd pull up the camera, take a picture and like take a picture of this. Take, and I realized like those images are great. I have thousands of them, but there's only a couple that are really meaningful. And I think nowadays what I've learned is like I probably take the least amount of pictures until I find a subject that, I, that I've learned is really meaningful, really once in a lifetime. And when I see that, I take a million, right? So I think the one skill that I've learned is like I've learned to hone in on when a moment is truly special and capitalize on it mm-hmm. as opposed to trying to just document everything spraying and praying you know and just trying to get through it. i think that's been a big difference you know for me so that's fascinating yeah, yeah it makes total sense but it, that only comes from time and maturity probably right. yeah. yeah yeah it's just a it's a time thing and i have also like you know being able to work on books and things like that have like helped you kind of tune into like oh okay well 
this is how I wish I would have shot this. Because I think when you start to edit your own work and lay out your own work, it really teaches you a lot about your own work. You know, that's been huge for me. So Cool. Yeah. That's awesome. What's next other than that Icelandic 800-some-odd miler? What are you excited about? Man, I'm excited about going to the Kuril Islands, a small island chain between Russia and Japan. That's insane. I'm actually working on a a little... um, video series potentially with specialized bikes just just kind of about like seeing the world by bike like Mm -hmm. teaming up with like experts in the field and like you know doing some like bike pack rafting or doing something like that i was actually going to ask that if you'd ever considered because obviously we all have our phones on on ourselves at this point but have you ever considered on a just going on a solo bike packing trip and taking a real camera yeah and kind of love to yeah i'd love to and that's a dream of mine like i want it's so hard because normally i'm like how many miles can i cram into a day you know it's 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 not often that i'm like okay this is gonna be a while and i want to like enjoy it and soak it in so but that's a dream i would love to start to combine photography with cycling and the reality though is like right now it's kind of just something for me like i don't really share it that much unless it's like my stories or and i have that fear because like climbing was kind of that thing it was like i loved climbing and i did a lot and i started to shoot it and then some of the the magic got lost but i think i just you know it's inevitable you want to photograph the things you enjoy you know so well i should uh send you on your way this was fun I hope yeah. we can get some more big sir pastries soon. Oh, yeah. 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 We got to do our coffee shop laps. I know, right? <laughs> Dude, thanks for having me, brother. Yeah, thanks for doing it. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Chris. Episode three is already available. It's a much longer, very different conversation with the most dominant mountain biker in history, Julie Furtado. She would never claim that, and she probably will dislike that I said that, but in my eyes, it's not really up for debate. Um, like I said, it's a very different conversation. Um, not always the most lighthearted. There are certainly some laughs in there, but we deal with some pretty heavy subjects that I think are, uh, very important conversation points. Um, especially in light of, uh, some recent events in the cycling world. Uh, so please do check it out. Um, I hope you enjoy it as always, please leave us a rating and a review. Um, and feel free to give us some feedback at the adventure stash at Thanks for listening.